Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us, that you're good to us, that you're kind to us. Thank you that you made everything, that you sustain everything, that you keep everything, that you are in charge. And Lord, we know that, that there is much in this world which stands in opposition to you, sometimes even us stand against you, God. But we're here this morning because we, we know that you are God. And we have raised our white flag and we have said, you be in charge. You're the only one who can run our lives, who can run this world, who can run the universe. You're God. Father, please help us to hear this morning something of your truth. Lord, help us to take it in and to think about how we, how we go about relating to this this question of, of how science or scientism and, and your word stand together or apart or how that fits. God, help us to, to be wise, to be gentle, to be thoughtful. But most of all, help us to be concerned for your honor, and your glory and your reputation. Lord, help us. Help me to be wise in what I say. Lord Jesus, point us to you by your Spirit. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with me, uh, just turn with me, if you would, to uh, Genesis. Never, did, never saw that coming, did you? Genesis chapter 1, and we're just going to read very quickly uh, through some of that. What we'll do is we'll skip a little bit of it because um, uh, we read it uh, a while ago, I think, at least some of it. And I hope you, you've read it all. If you haven't read it all, go back and read it. It's, it's a good read. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness, night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. God said, let there be a space between the waters. Um, God called the space sky. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Verse 9. God said, let the waters uh, beneath the sky flow together into one place so that dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the waters seas. And God saw that it was good. And we read on what God does on that day. And, and evening passed, verse 13, and morning came, marking day three. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the nights. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on earth. And that is what happened. Uh, verse 19, and evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good, verse 23, and evening passed and morning came marking day five. And God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, wild animals. And that is what happened uh, verse 25, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings, verse 26, 
in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God looked over, verse 31, all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. And we read on. Let's just stop right there. Has anyone here traced their family's history? Peter, you, uh, Wayne, you've traced your family history. You went, visited some of the islands where your family came from. And it's fascinating trying to see who your family is. Peter, you've done a bit of history tracking, haven't you? No, it's Phil. Right direction, wrong person. Phil, you've done a lot of family history. It's, it's, it's fascinating to figure out who it is. And it's a lot of hard work. If you want to know how difficult it is to find out who your antecedents are, have a chat to these guys, because it's not easy. It's, it's, it's writing letters, it's doing all sorts of discovery and figuring things out and reading old newspapers and old police reports, probably, in both of your cases. And they're Australian, it must be so. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in the same way that we can go back in our family history to map the history of, of our past, uh, scientists can do the same and go and try and map the history of the universe. Uh, and they use the same sort of strategies. They look at, at the evidence that they got. They speak about what's happening at the moment. They look back at the clues from the past, and they, they try and figure it out until they're pretty sure they've got a, a, a good interpretation of the evidence, just like what these guys have done, and, and we think that we followed the clues back to something like 13.8 billion years ago, just after it all got started. And the more we learn about the history of the universe, the more incredible it is that it exists and that we exist. Um, there's something like 15 different constants, things you have to put, exact numbers you have to put in the mathematical equations to make them work. And if they are slightly different, everything falls over in a heap. Um, just one little example. Uh, they reckon that, um, that there was a time when there were nothing but quarks and antiquarks. And it sounds cool, doesn't it? Quarks and antiquarks. Quarks are the things that make up stuff. But when there was nothing but quarks and antiquarks, so when you get a quark and an antiquark, a plus minus, what do they do when you put them together? They cancel out. And the scientists reckon that there was a time when there was only quarks and antiquarks and they were cancelling each other out, but every billion antiquarks, there was a billion and one quarks. We are one in a billion. Isn't that amazing? That God, beg your pardon? Exactly. Isn't God amazing? 
Isn't God amazing that he is able to, to make us out of one in a billion and to make the billionth to make us come from? That is incredible. And, and these, other, these other constants that we look back, these scientific theories, we look at that and we go, it is impossible for that to just be an accident. The probabilities are so high that if you believe that you should be a millionaire over a hundred times, you should buy every lottery ticket because you're obviously very stupid. Well, you're not. You're, you're obviously just deluded. You know, there, there are people out there who say that you cannot be a Christian. You can't even believe in God and believe all this stuff about how incredibly this universe is made. Uh, you can either follow Jesus or you can accept science. 1961, I put this in the newsletter, a guy called uh, Rudolf Boltzmann. Uh, he's got some interesting ideas. Uh, he's a theologian. He just doesn't believe Jesus is God. Uh, but listen to what he says. Uh, it is impossible to use the electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. So let's switch off the lights. Turn off the microphone because apparently we're not allowed to do both that and follow Jesus. You know, there are people out there who, who say that the only stuff that exists is stuff. That matter is all that ever was and ever will be. It's a very good question. Where did the matter come from? They might answer, it doesn't matter. We say, I think it does. <laughs> People who say, stuff just happens to exist. And that we exist as a fluke of nature. Others, like us Christians, and, and there are other uh, religious people who say the same thing. I, I think we've got an edge on them. We follow Jesus who has proven himself to be God. We say that there is a mind behind the universe. That there is someone who created it. Um, and we accept science. We're quite happy to use the electric light bulb. We're quite happy to use the wireless, which I think means the radio. I know it means the radio. <laughs> we accept science. But we also accept that it is limited in its scope in dealing only with the stuff that God has made. It has its limits, mainly because it can only investigate that which it can see or theorize. As Christians, we believe that God has revealed himself through his word. He has told us uh, about himself and what he has done. So I think what we need to do is let's, uh, let's read from the Bible together. Are, are we keen to do that? Um, I'm going to throw it up on the screen um, Wayne, can I do this? Because I'm going to read it off here because I'm jumping all over the place. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 30. Let all the earth tremble before him, before God. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty, armed with strength. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 8. 
He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. How about Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 5? The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. Brothers and sisters, obviously the Bible teaches that the earth is firm and fixed, and everything moves around us. Can I have an amen? We're pretty sure that the earth moves. (laughs) And pretty sure I've yet to see a satellite photo with a bunch of pillars holding it up. You know, back in the 4th century, and let me just, before I really get started in this, let me just say, um, this is going to be an interesting sermon, slightly different approach to sermon, and also say, if you want to get more details, read John Lennox, he's brilliant on this stuff. Um, I've taken a lot of, uh, I'm following him quite well here, uh, taken a lot of inspiration from him. Uh, But let's go back to the 4th century B.C., a Greek bloke called Aristotle, brilliant scientist, a little bit confused. Um, he did some amazing studies. He said the earth is a globe. The earth is round. So he got that bit right. He also said the earth was eternal, which he got a little bit wrong. Uh, but he also figured out that the earth stands at the center of the universe and that the sun and the moon and the stars move around the earth. Because it's quite obvious, if you stand on the earth, everything moves around you. You're like, duh. He, he figured that out. He wrote it down, 4th century B.C., Um, He wasn't a Christian, uh, but there was a bloke called Thomas Aquinas, a little bit later, famous church father, uh, 1225 to 1274 is when he lived, so 13th century AD this time. He liked some of Aristotle's ideas. He he particularly liked the idea of the earth being the fixed center of the universe. I mean, obviously it must be true because it seems to make sense and the Bible says it. Probably verses like the ones that we just read. Obviously true, the earth is fixed and everything else moves around it. And then you get this terrible bloke called Nicholas Copernicus in 1534, a couple of hundred years later, sorry, 1543, um, and he starts suggesting that the earth moves, which is a radical break with science and a radical break with what the teaching of the Bible is. And then a little bit later after that, uh, 1632, you have Galileo with his telescope looking at the moons of Jupiter and realizing, hey, there's stuff going around Jupiter. A whole bunch of other things that he discovers as well, which doesn't seem to line up with the Aristotelian idea that the earth is at the center of everything. The idea that is accepted by the science of the day for hundreds of years now, and that the church has said this must be true because it matches with what the Bible says. And poor old Galileo was attacked on both sides. He was attacked by the non-Christian scientists for talking twaddle, because everyone knows the earth is fixed. And he was attacked by the church because can't you read the Bible says the earth is fixed. Both were convinced that they couldn't be wrong, so they rejected the idea. I mean, these days, we've got no problem saying that the earth moves. 
uh, the earth moves around the sun. The sun itself is moving. The whole universe is moving with gravity. It's, it's amazing stuff. But my question for us this morning is, why do we Christians today accept this new interpretation, accept that science and reject what the Bible clearly says? One thousand eight hundred years, or at least fifteen, of thinking that way, and at least a thousand years of the church saying this is the truth. We've read it. Why don't we stay true to the Bible? Is it possible, though, that that the Bible's not wrong, but we are? <laughs> that we've read it wrong. You know, when we read the Bible, the first thing that we should do is we should read what it says and take it on face value. Basically say, what is the natural meaning of this little bit of writing that I've just read? If it makes sense, if it's obvious what it means, it makes sense and it fits in with everything else that we know about God, that God has revealed, then wonderful. I mean, things like Jesus' life, death, resurrection are, are clearly meant to be taken on face value. They, they're not, they're just, they're just real. They're meant to be taken as real. And we know this because of what John says. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John's basically saying, guys, just take me literally on this, please. You don't have to try and figure out what I'm saying here. It's kind of obvious. Jesus came, life came, we saw, we touched, we were there. It, it really happened. And that, that's the, the first step. When we read a text, we should look at it and say, what is the obvious first meaning? We should also be asking, well, what, do, what would the first people who read it have thought about it? Because it wasn't written firstly to us, it was written to them. And it had to make sense to them because it was God's inspired word to them. This is an aside, this is... One of the reasons I'm always weary of people who in, in read Revelation in such a way that it would have made absolutely no sense to people a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. It was written to them as much as to us. So that, that's the first rule. The first rule is what does it obviously seem to say? The second rule when we read the Bible is what did the people who first read it, what would they have understood it to mean? Uh, um, They've got a particular culture, and culture affects how we interpret meaning. Imagine you walking through a shopping center, and you overhear a little bit of conversation. And there's a woman saying, yes, of course, there are, there are bars across all of the windows. And you walk past, and you might go, oh, that's so sad. They must be talking about someone in prison. Or you could walk past going, oh, they're talking about a house in South Africa. Context, cultural context changes the meaning entirely. 
They've got the other problem that words can mean more than one thing. In fact, we see this in Genesis um, chapter 1, where in, in Hebrew, the word uh, earth, uh, where am I? I've got it there. The word earth uh, is used to say both, you know, the earth and the dry ground. It's the same word, but it means two different things. And there are also times when taking what the Bible says on face value is obviously wrong. Let me give you an example here. John 10, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking about being the good shepherd. He says, Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. Jesus is not a gate in a literal sense of the word. Uh, if, if you wanted to read literally, you'd go, I don't understand how this works, but I believe it. The Bible says that I believe it. That concludes it. I'm done. I have no idea how that works. How is he a gate? Obviously, it's, it's a metaphor. Jesus isn't a literal gate, but, but his point is that those who come in through him are saved. He is the doorway to life. That, that, it tells us something real about who Jesus is. Or have a look at the slightly longer example. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 48. Jesus ha- has fed the crowd. Um, he's done an amazing miracle. He's speaking to them. He says, yes, I am the bread of life. Again, literally, uh, he's not actually a loaf of bread. Uh, we know this. We, we know how to read. Uh, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer the world, so the world may live, is my flesh. Listen to this. Then all the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They asked. I am the bread. How does that work? You must, Jesus, you're talking nonsense. We're not going to eat you. What? Huh? You see, the problem with the crowd here is they're looking at the words of Jesus and, and just going surface level, face value. Jesus says we must eat his flesh to live. Therefore, he must be saying we must eat his body. That doesn't make sense. Huh? Hopefully, we look at that today and we go, obviously, Jesus isn't literally saying take a chunk out of me. Jesus is saying something bigger, something deeper. He's, he's saying we need his life in order for us to live. Is this kind of obvious? You guys got it? This bit of feedback? Obvious? You, you, you understand what I'm getting at here. Some things you take on face value. Some things are definitely not meant to be taken on face value. They're, they're metaphors. They've got a deepness and a richness to them. Sometimes words can mean more than one thing. Culture, context, all these things matter when we read the Bible. So let's get back to our question, does science beat the Bible? How do we decide if something is meant to be taken at face value or not? I think a useful tool for us is to say, if it doesn't make sense with the rest of what God has said, if the face value doesn't make sense with the rest of what God has said and revealed, go to the next level. Have a look at Romans with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. Uh, This is Paul speaking about the world at large. He says, They know the truth about God because he has made 
Well, he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, notice he says the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. In other words, what Paul is saying here, creation, the world which God made, can teach us something about who God is. And creation is also the world that science studies. Now, creation cannot tell us about God in the clear, detailed way of of the Bible, because in the Bible, God specifically, specially shows himself to us. God speaks clearly. But there are hints there. And, And if creation is God's expression, is what God has done, what God has made, then creation, what that says, is not going to be in conflict with what God says in the Bible because otherwise God would be in conflict with himself. If God is shown to be something here, he's going to be the same thing here because it's the same God. Does that make sense? You see, I want to suggest that studying the Bible and looking at it properly and studying the world can help us to do both. Studying the world can help us decide which interpretation of the Bible is actually right if there are multiple valid options. I mean, we could insist against all the evidence that the earth stands still, that it cannot be shaken, that the sun rises and the sun sets and we are the fixed center of the universe. We've read those verses. We can look at it. We can say this is how it is. And naysayers be blown out of the water. there is another way we can read those Bible texts. We can look at them and say, wow, maybe maybe they're not actually meant to be taken on face value. Maybe we're meant to look at them and say that they are speaking about the incredible stability and order that God has built into his creation. You see, what we've done there is we've taken what we know from this world and we've looked at this world and we go, well, everything that we look at says that the earth moves. Therefore, we're going to throw out this interpretation of the Bible which says the earth doesn't move because if we accepted both of these, they would be in conflict and God would be in conflict and that can't be because God is God. So what about creation? Let's get back to Genesis. And, and let's, let's get really specific here. Um, let's ask a question. How old is the world actually? Genesis 1 and 2 are complex. Uh, the days are clearly arranged in pairs. Day 1 matches up with day 4. Day 2 matches up with day 5. Day 3 matches up with day 6 in terms of what happens on each of those days. Uh, exercise for yourself. Go home today and read day 1 and then read day 4 and see how they, they kind of line up, light and sun. And uh, uh, Sorry, let me just look at that one. Uh, lights, that's right, lights and, and stuff appear on day 4. 
Genesis' main point isn't to give us a science lesson. Genesis' main point is to introduce us to God. It's to say, this is the God who made everything. This is your God. But Genesis touches on some stuff of the created world. And so if we're going to say that the two must line up, if God is to be true to himself, then we're going to look at and see whether we can find something from here. There are some people today who follow uh, uh, the ideas of a guy called Bishop Usher, who was around in the late 1500s, early 1600s, who who did some calculations and worked out that the earth is exactly 4,004, well, not 4,004 years old. It was created in the year 4,004 BC. That's a very nice uh, symmetrical number, that. Um, Unfortunately, people who follow Bishop Usher then have to desperately try and explain away the evidence that says he is out by a factor of a million. Others say, no, we think that God's word and, and, uh, and science are actually compatible. His witness of creation is compatible with what the word says. And we're going to set aside the whole question of you know, evolution, and, and we're just going to focus on how old the earth is. Because there are some Christians who say God could have used evolution. There are some who say, no, obviously God couldn't have used evolution. For myself, I don't think evolution makes sense of the science or of the Bible. So... We're just going to leave that one aside for now. We're just going to ask, well, how old is the earth? Let's just start here. Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, This is a little bit technical, but the verb created there is in the perfect past tense, which in Hebrew writing, if you put that at the very start of a story, the effect is the same as when you go to watch the new Star Wars and it's, it's got that whole long spiel about what's happened before the movie starts. That grammatical usage at the start of a story says previously on. In other words, verse 1 says, you know, before we even get started telling you the story of what God's done, let's just take it for granted, God made everything. In the beginning, God made it. Let's also notice that each day, apart from the Sabbath day, follows the same pattern. And God said, la 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 la, evening and morning, day one, two, three, four. And this pattern starts in verse 3, not in verse 1, which implies creation before day 1. which means the age of the universe isn't discussed at all because there's a whole long gap there. We don't know how long the gap is. We've just got a previously on, and then we have day one, God does this. So really, from the, the text of Genesis, we can actually make no argument specifically for how old the earth is because there's a gap there. There's a, a, a gap in the age. of well, there's, there's a gap between God created and day one. That gap could be... A minute? That gap could be a millisecond. That gap could be four million years. I don't know how long it is. Genesis doesn't care how long it is. It's not about that. Let's move on. I mean, we can say that the Bible says the earth is young, but the Bible itself doesn't insist on that. While we're at it, let's look at this word day. Um, the Greek word for day is yom. 
Yom. It sounds very Middle Eastern, doesn't it? Let's have a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness night. So day obviously means when it's light outside. Imagine we're on the equator, that's 12 hours, if we take it at face value. Um, uh, And evening passed, and morning came, marking day one. Evening, morning suggests to us that day is, you know, what we normally call a day. 24 hours, face value. Um, That's the pattern that happens all the way through, day one, two, three, four, five, six. But have a look at uh, day seven, the seventh day. Uh, On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all of his work of creation. You know what's interesting about day seven? We don't get that, and there was morning and there was evening the seventh day. It's left open-ended. So perhaps the seventh day carries on. And there have been church fathers from way back when who've said that day seven has never finished. So this is getting confusing. We've got day is daylight, day is 24 hours, day carries on forever. Let's do one more. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens, and you're looking at me going, you've made a mistake, Nick, you've read the wrong verse, there's no day in there. Well, I'm sorry, there is. We just translated it away. That word when is actually in the day, in the Hebrew. They translated it away because... Ah, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, because that's what it means. Uh, the day in chapter 2 verse 4 means in the day when God made it, which is kind of like our way of saying, you know, in my day you could buy four lollies for a cent. It's it's that kind of usage of the... So now we're really confused. We've got three, four different ways uh, that we can read what day means. Day is, you know, daylight. Day is a day. Day is, um, you know, going on forever. It's got no limit to it. Or, Or day is like, you know, back then. Confused yet? Good. Uh, make it even more confusing, uh, our English Bibles, when they translate things, they make it make sense in English, but they've, they also hide some stuff for us. Um, if you look at, at days one, two, three, four, five, you'll see the pattern is, and God said, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. That's actually not what it says in the original languages. It says, in the, God said, blah, 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 day one. And God said, blah, 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 day two. And God said, blah, 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 day three. And God said, blah, 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 day four. And God said, blah, 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 day five. And God said, blah, 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 the sixth day. Day one through five don't have the word the in them. Day six and day seven have the word the. They're pretty special days. They're the days when God makes humanity his ultimate creation and the day when God rests. But, but at the very least, we look at this and we look at the grammar and you guys didn't think you were getting English lessons today or even Hebrew lessons. But you look at that and you go, there's something going on in this text. It's sophisticated. It's complex. Someone has done a good job of writing this. That's not a mistake. I don't think the Bible's got mistakes. It's not a mistake that days one to five don't have the word the. There's something different about those days. 
something special about the last two. Do the creation days of Genesis 1 through to chapter 2 have to be 24-hour days? I mean, you can read it that way. You read it on face value, you can read it that way, but you don't have to. Given the evidence of creation and the fact that we we think we can see back so far and and, um, all of the scientific evidence that we have, I personally think that they aren't meant to be read in 24 literal days. Can God create in 24 hours? Absolutely. Why would he take so long, though? If God's God, then 24 hours is a very long time. Or why would he take so short? If God's God, a thousand years are like a day. He is in eternity. Perhaps, as John Lennox says, um, perhaps the days of creation mark when God orders the next step of creation. And then there's time between the days for that to flourish, for the trees to grow, for the animals to reproduce, for, for things to take off. And then God steps in and says, right, let's do step two now. And we, who knows? I don't think Genesis is about that. Here's the thing. There is no major doctrine of Christianity that, de- that, that is going to break depending on what you think about this. It doesn't change who we are. We are created by God. We are special. We are His. It doesn't change who Jesus is. It doesn't change why we need Him. It doesn't change that He died, that He rose to death, that He offers us to be with Him forever. How you read Genesis doesn't affect any of that. And so you're sitting here going, thanks Nick for wasting my time. You've sat here for, you know, 30, 40 minutes telling me stuff that makes no difference in the world. Yay! It actually does make a difference. This matters because Jesus' reputation is at stake. As Christians, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. More, we believe that Jesus right now sustains it and holds it all together. Have a listen to what Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus, he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Jesus understands how everything works because he made it and he keeps it working. If you you think about the smartest person you've ever met, Jesus is smarter. If you invited Jesus to a symposium where they're talking about the Large Hadron Collider and how they're finding Higgs bosons, Jesus would sit there going, boy, you guys are still in grade school, aren't you? He knows it all. He made it all. He's in charge of it all. He's the smartest person who ever was. Whoever will be. But I do believe that science is a God-given calling for some. It's very interesting. One of the first things that God does in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 to 20, is he calls Adam around and says, Oi, Adam, all these animals, could you name them all? And naming stuff is like at the basis of science. It's taxonomy. It's a, it's a scientific calling. God says, Hey, Adam, do some science for me. And Adam says, Yep, cheetah, lion, gazelle. And eventually it says, ooh, woman. But think about it this way. Augustine, a church father from about the 400s, he personally believed God created in an instant and Genesis is just God's explaining 
why and how and that sort of stuff. He wrote a thing, uh, a, an article or a book called On the Literal Meaning of Genesis. Listen to what he says. Usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth. Remember, this is written 400 AD. Usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth and the heavens. Now, it's a, a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talk nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. Let me put that differently. How will people believe us about Jesus if we're talking rubbish about stuff they know? Put it back into the 1600s. Why would people believe us about Jesus if we talk rubbish about the earth being fixed? They'll look at us and go, well, you're nutters. You think the earth is fixed. Everyone knows it's not. You're idiots. Why are we going to trust you about Jesus if you can't be trusted about something as simple as that? I find this very interesting that this is a problem that we have today and it's a problem that we've had for the last 16, 1700 years. But also, why would we insist that the earth doesn't move if the Bible doesn't insist we have to look at it that way? If we stood up today, put on our website, we, Golden Bay Baptist Church, believe the earth is fixed on firm foundations and it cannot be moved, and all this talk of the earth moving is completely rubbish, told by scientists, people would look at us and go, that's a nutter church. I don't want anything to do with them. Why would I want to listen to them about Jesus when they talk such drivel? I think Jesus would be the first person today to say, that we should follow the truth wherever it leads. Because Jesus is the truth. I wonder whether sometimes, let me put it this way, if we're afraid of the truth, what are we saying about Jesus? Too many people have been exposed to bad science and false claims. Um, Like people in Augustine's days, people today as well. Usually, sometimes rather, by people who think that they are defending what the Bible obviously says. When really what they are defending is one particular way of reading the Bible. Now maybe the Bible doesn't actually insist that it be read that way. Maybe the earth can move. Maybe you read the Bible that the earth is young. Maybe you read the Bible that the earth is old. The Bible, as the Bible, is kind of agnostic. The problem is that when people who have been fed bad science and said, you've got to believe the Bible or else you're in trouble, or said there is a conflict between what God has shown in his creation and what God says in the Bible, people who have been fed nonsense quite often then come and find out, actually there's so much evidence here, I, I must believe this. And then they've got this thing inside them going, well, I have to choose. I have to choose between the evidence and God and 
and so I'm going to choose the evidence. Which is right to choose the evidence because as Christians, we are evidence-based people. The Bible is a history book. We believe Jesus rode from the dead not because somebody wrote it down and said that's a nice idea, but because there is evidence. We are called to follow the one who is the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, said Jesus. And if he is the truth, he is the truth of everything. As Christians, we have a duty to follow the truth wherever it leads. We are disciples of the one who is true. And so, is there a conflict between science and religion? Science and Christianity? No. There's no conflict. The one is made by God, the one is God speaking. If God did both, then they are in perfect union. Now, can people misinterpret science and say because of this there can be no God? Of course they can. That's rubbish. Can people, on the other hand, in the church go, blah, 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 I'm going to misinterpret this, therefore all the evidence is wrong? Sadly, they do. As Christians, we are called to walk the fine line of saying we look at the evidence and we look at what God has said and the two line up. I'm not going to tell you what you must think about the age of the earth. I'll tell you I think the earth is old based on the evidence and based on what the Bible says. I know there are people who look at the Bible and say, well, the earth is obviously young. And we have debates, and I love it, because we talk about, look, give me your evidence, I'll give you mine, and we'll discuss why you're wrong and why I'm right. <laughs> I'm arrogant, aren't I? And they do the same to me. It's wonderful. But when it comes to a non-Christian, this is not the hill to die on. I'd rather shut up and tell them about Jesus than be right. You see, this is about Jesus' reputation. And it saddens me that us Christians have a reputation of being anti-evidence. Rightly or wrongly, the world out there is bought into the lie that there is a conflict between science and Christianity. And that does damage to the name of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to, to read the Bible well. That's basically what the sermon has been about today. Read the Bible well. It's an English lesson. And I want to encourage you to read the world well as well. Look up the evidence. See how the two work together. Come to your conclusions. Find someone and talk to them about it. It's, it's interesting stuff. God is amazing what he has done. But for goodness sake... Let's not talk out of our hats and drive people away from Jesus. Mark.